morning, everyone. Welcome to North Park. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my great privilege to be here this morning to preach. We are continuing in our Advent series, which is our series we have leading up until Christmas, and the series we've called Till He Appears, focusing on these early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to pray first, and then we can really begin. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your son, and we thank you for your spirit. And we ask, Lord, right now, in your mercy, that you would use your spirit to speak so that we would know your son. We would see what he has done. I pray, Father, that this would not be about me and my words. This wouldn't be about North Park. This would be about Jesus Christ and your mercy and grace that you have given to us through him. May you reveal yourself to us this morning so that we would know the glories of your love and your grace and salvation. Father, please speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this past week, I rewatched with my wife for, there was debate. We were debating how many times we watched this together before. But we rewatched, I think, for the fourth time, BBC's rendition of Jane Austen's Emma. So Emma is one of Jane Austen's novels, but in 2009, BBC made it into a four-part miniseries for TV, and for whatever reason, so I'm not talking about the, Gwen, the Gwyneth Paltrow one, okay? This one's better, all right? It's, it's four parts. It's better, all right? And for whatever reason, when I get sick, I don't know why this is, but when I get sick, this is what I want to watch with my wife. I really, like, we, we enjoy watching British stuff together in general, but for whatever reason, like Emma, when I'm sick, I'm like, yes, I want to know about Emma. How is Emma doing? Now, I was reflecting on this a little bit this past week on how much I enjoy re-watching a lot of different movies or shows if I know the ending and I like the ending. I will happily indulge in re-watching that or sporting events. If my team won and we taped the game, I did this a couple of weeks ago when the 49ers beat the Eagles. I re-watched the whole game the day after because my son wanted, wanted to and it's my day off and I'm like, yeah, we should do that. And I think that could seem kind of strange. Like, why would you want to rewatch those kinds of things? But I, I don't think that I am alone in this. It's why sports channels replay games all the time from past years and various movies. I mean, guys, it's Christmas time. You could go home right now and you could turn on your TV and Will Ferrell will be wearing tights in front of you. It will be Elf or Home Alone or something like that. Like, th- these things happen all the time. We enjoy rewatching things. I know plenty of people that really enjoy rereading novels. My wife is doing that right now. Many of my friends will rewatch an entire series, even when the show is multiple seasons long. They'll watch every single episode. This is a common thing. But okay, why? Why do we do this? Why do we enjoy doing this? I think in many ways it seems counterintuitive to us. We would think that you wouldn't want to watch something again because you know the ending. And we assume that knowing the ending spoils the enjoyment of watching or reading. But I don't actually think that that is true. Instead, what I found for myself is that the joy in rewatching something that I already know the ending to, and I already know that I like the ending, is that I'm then able to watch it and essentially almost endure the different things differently throughout. Now, I still go through all the different emotions that the show or the movie or the book or the game gives to me. Like in watching Emma, 
I'm pretty sure I teared up in the exact same places I have all four times I've watched it, guys. It's just, it's a great story, okay? I was thinking that happens. I still experience those kind of highs. I get the smile on my face. I enjoy what's going on. And I still experience the lows, and I don't like them. I don't actually like watching those parts of it. But I can kind of go through them and endure them because I know the resolution. I know how it ends. I know in the end, the 49ers beat the Eagles. It's okay what's going on here. I can endure these different things because I know the end of the story. What if you could do that with your life? What if we could do that with our world? As we look at the world and how things are going, what if it was possible to know how it all ends? To know the end of the story and to know it is good. How differently do you think you would live? How differently do you think that you would experience the highs of your life, but also the lows? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning as we look at this text. Because this morning, as we continue in our series and look at Zechariah's prophecy concerning the significance of John's birth and Jesus' coming, what I hope to show you is that the claim of this passage is that through their birth and ultimately through the coming of Jesus Christ, God has fulfilled his promises so completely that he has already purchased our salvation and already won. So that God has actually done something in history that we look back on that tells us for sure what the end of the story is going to be. That in reality, what is actually happening in the New Testament is its claim is that the end of history has come into the middle of it. That the end of the story has been revealed to us in the middle. So what I hope to show you, and what this means, is that when we celebrate Christmas, yes, we are celebrating something that God has done, but it's something that God has done that guarantees for us what he will do. That we now know the end of the story, and it is good. And so what I want to do then this morning is to hopefully give us hope give us joy, that as awesome as things has been throughout your life, it is going to get so much better because of what the Lord is doing. And as low and dark and awful as things are, I'm telling you, one day it will be resolved. One day it will be overturned because of what God has done. We can know what he will do. That is what this text, and really Zachariah's song, shows to us. Okay, before we get to Zechariah's song, let's just briefly discuss verses 57 through 66 that lead up to this prophecy that Zechariah proclaims. So in these verses, we come to the birth of John the Baptist, which means that we're really picking up the story that began at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells the birth of both John and of Jesus. John is the forerunner of Jesus, and so he's actually kind of going back and forth and interweaving the stories together. And here we're picking up what began with Gabriel, the angel Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. All right, so Zechariah was a priest. He was in the temple burning some incense, and his angel showed up to him and told him that despite his old age and his wife's old age and despite their barrenness, they were going to have a son, but not just any son, that this son was going to be the beginning of God fulfilling his promises to remake the world. For this son would be the fulfillment of God's word in the Old Testament, that a prophet would come before God's salvation would arrive, to prepare the people to receive God's salvation. That is who Zachariah and Elizabeth's son, John, was promised to be. 
He was to be Jesus' forerunner, to prepare the people's hearts for the arrival of Jesus Christ. You see, that is what Gabriel had told Zechariah. But if you remember back to when we talked about this, Zechariah had not really believed Gabriel when he was told this. Instead, it seems that he was so used to, so used to his wife being barren, so used to dealing with this, so used to crying out to God time and time again, and God never answering, that even when an angel showed up, he didn't actually believe it was possible. So he asked, how will this be since we are very old? He thought that that had put restrictions basically on what God could do. And because of that, because he did not believe the word of God, God did not take away the blessing from him. That's not how God works. But what Gabriel said would happen is that he would now be mute until these things were fulfilled, until he saw God's fulfillment, until Elizabeth gave birth to his baby boy. But okay, what's important to note is that that word mute does not just refer to the inability to speak. Okay, for us, it does that. But in how that word got used at the Bible, by the time you get to the New Testament, when that word is spoken, when it says you will be mute, what it actually means is not just the inability to speak, but the inability to hear. So Gabriel is actually saying to Zechariah, you will not be able to say anything since you questioned God's word, and you won't be able to hear anything since these words right now, okay? And the reason that's important to know is because it helps make sense of our text today. Because again, what happens is Elizabeth gives birth to her son, just as Gabriel said. And then on the eighth day, they bring him to be circumcised. And they did this because it was part of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Right? So God had set his people, Israel, apart for the sake of the world knowing who God was. Basically, God blessed Israel so that they could display God's goodness, his grace, and salvation to the world. And as a sign of that covenant... God had told them to circumcise all males on the eighth day to mark them off as part of the people of God. And so in obedience to God, because of the covenant, Zachariah and Elizabeth had their son circumcised on the eighth day, and this is when they were going to name him. Okay, so the discussion's happening. What are they going to name this child? And Elizabeth says, he's going to be called John. That confuses them. That confuses the friends and the family around. They're like, why not something like Joel? You know, like something better or something like that. They want something within the family. They're like, why, why are you, why, why John? And so they look at Zachariah. Zachariah doesn't know what's going on, okay? He's not hearing what's going on. He's watching people talk. He doesn't know what they're saying. He doesn't know what Elizabeth just said. So they have to make signs to him, and he gets something to write on, and then he writes, his name is John. Now, of course, we don't know for sure if Zechariah had communicated to Elizabeth beforehand that the angel had said his name needs to be John. It seems likely that he did. But it does, not, it does seem clear that they had not communicated that to any of their friends and family who were around them. The friends and family who were there were simply there to celebrate with this old couple who had finally been given a baby without any real understanding of the significance of this child. That is until both parents separately want to name him John. And then Zachariah's mouth and ears are open, and he starts proclaiming praises to God. That causes the people, in verse 66, to ask, what then is this child going to be? And with the way this is written, I believe that is the question Luke wants in our heads as we come to Zachariah's song. Because after writing that his name was John, 
God did reopen his ears and his mouth, the ears and mouth of Zechariah, and God's Holy Spirit came upon Zechariah, and he began not only to, pr- to praise God, but to prophesy, to proclaim to everyone, here is what God is doing to the birth of John. And so actually answering that question, what is this child going to be? The answer to that question is what this song is. But what is perhaps the most surprising thing about that is that when Zechariah begins, he does not actually begin by talking about John directly. He doesn't actually get to John until halfway through the song. Instead, he begins by focusing on Jesus. And that is because what is significant about John is not himself, but rather that his birth was the beginning of the coming of Jesus. And so when we try to explain the significance of John's birth, we can only do so rightly by explaining what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And so Zechariah begins with these words. Praise be to the Lord, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Okay, what he is saying with these first words is that through Jesus, the one that John pointed forward to, God has done what he promised to do. He has saved his people again, but in a much more ultimate and complete way. In fact, Zechariah does something here that he actually does this all throughout the song, which is use Old Testament imagery. Would have been very familiar to people that were there. Okay, he's using different phrases and stuff like that that would recall different stories all throughout the song. And in these verses, he is using imagery that would point to the Exodus and of God raising up David to be king, who's referred to in the books of First and Second Samuel as a horn. To be the king was to be the horn. So basically what he's saying here is just as God redeemed us out of slavery and brought us to himself, just as he gave us a righteous king before, he's done these things again. He has saved us once again, as he promised to do in a more complete way. But okay, what I want us to notice here is how absolute the language is. That it's actually past tense. That it's saying the Lord God himself has come to his people and redeemed them. That he has raised up a horn of salvation. Not that he will Not that we're looking forward to the day when he will, but that he has come, he has redeemed, he has raised up a horn of salvation. Zechariah here is not speaking in terms of the future, in terms of what we want God to do eventually. He is saying this is something God has done for the birth of John and the coming of Jesus. This is actually a pattern in the early parts of Luke. So if you think back to last week's excellent sermon by Pastor Trish, okay, she walked us through the story of Mary and Elizabeth interacting, and then Mary's Magnificat, okay, her song singing about the significance of the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, think about the language that she uses. So Pastor Trish talked about the reversal that's going to happen, okay, that Mary sings the fact that God said she turned the world right side up through Jesus Christ, But again, what tense is she using? This is what Mary says. God has scattered those who are proud and has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Over and over again, in the early parts of Luke, and this this really is, this is throughout the New Testament, it is calling on us to recognize that the coming of Jesus Christ 
is the fulfillment, not the partial fulfillment, is the fulfillment of God's promises to overturn the ways of the world. So at Christmas, we are meant to be celebrating God's salvation that has come, that despite the way it looks, despite the way you might feel right now, God has acted, he has redeemed, he has saved, he has given us the true king. I think this is such an important point that we need to process when we think about the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of Christmas, of the cross and the resurrection. Guys, Zachariah's words here are calling us to truly reflect at Christmas on the completed work of God through Jesus Christ. You see, I, I often think that we don't, and I include myself in this, that we don't recognize the significance, the absolute claim that the New Testament has concerning what Jesus accomplished through his birth, life, death, and resurrection. That the claim of the New Testament is that Jesus has already fulfilled the promises of God. I mean, what, what did he say when he was on the cross? It is finished. Now, of course, there is a very strong element of longing for the future in the New Testament as well. And we need to do that. We need to long for the future. And actually, the season of Advent, which literally means, Advent literally means arrival or coming. This season in the church calendar was always meant to be about looking back to Jesus' first arrival, his first Advent, and longing for his second. We are meant to look back and to look forward, to look at his first coming and to long for a second. But... But, and this is really important, we are meant to long for Jesus' return not so that he can become the king, not so that he can become our savior, but so that he would be fully revealed to be what he already is. We want Jesus to come back because we want what is real, what is true, what he has fully accomplished already to be made manifest. Yes, we long for his second advent then so that we and the world can fully experience the salvation and the victory he already won, he already purchased through his birth, cross, and resurrection. You see, this is something that was often so hard for the people of Jesus' day to really grasp. This is why they rejected so much of the teaching that the church was doing, because the witnesses and followers of Jesus in his day were claiming that Jesus had accomplished his victory, that God's victory had come, that his salvation, his rescuing had already taken place, that Jesus had already been enthroned as the king of the whole world so that all who followed him had been set free from the powers and structures of the world. That's what Zechariah is claiming here. Praise the Lord, because he has come to his people, because he has redeemed us. He has given us a king in the house of David as he almost always promised to do, and this king is a horn of salvation. Okay, look at how he expands on this, all right? Starting in verse 71. So he just said that God has given us this horn of salvation. Starting in verse 71, he starts to explain what that salvation is. And what is it? It's salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show to our ancestors and to remember, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
That's what Zechariah is claiming God accomplished through Jesus Christ. God's people. We've been rescued from our enemies. The empires of Rome and all others were overthrown through Jesus. God's mercy and its covenantal faithfulness was fulfilled where God's people were set free to be who they were always meant to be. They could no longer live in the oppressive hand of other rulers, but rather under God's hand. They were to be now his holy and righteous people who would display to the world the goodness of God. That's Zachariah's claim. That's the claim in the New Testament, that through the coming of this child, the coming of Jesus, God has fully rescued his people from oppression so that they can show the world his salvation. But how on earth does that make any sense? How is that even possible? How can one claim that through Jesus, God's people, we've been set free, we have been saved or rescued from our enemies? That was the problem so many people had in Jesus' day. If Jesus is the king of Israel and of the world who has overthrown the powers of the world, why is Caesar still in place? Why is Nero killing so many of us? Why has nothing changed? Those are some of the questions they were asking. I think we need to admit they make sense. I mean, when you look at the history of the church, it's not like after Jesus rose from the grave, the church had it easy. Guys, I'm a pastor, and I have the amazing privilege of getting to know so many of you and being in your lives. I think we would be shocked if we actually knew all the different hard things that people are going through right in this room. Weren't we promised that things would be better? Go and read the book of Acts, and you'll find that over and over again, God's people suffered because they followed Jesus Christ. Their lives seemed to get harder. The religious elites who opposed Jesus continued to hold sway, and the Roman Empire arrested and killed so many Christians, and that didn't stop at the end of the book of Acts. In fact, the New Testament, in so many ways, is dedicated to equipping us to know how to live in this in-between time, to know how to endure suffering at the hands of others and just being alive. So how can I be saying that the claim in the New Testament is that through Jesus, through his coming, through Christmas, through his life, death, and resurrection, God has fulfilled his promises and overthrown his enemies, rescuing us from the hand of those who hate him and enabling us to be his people who showed the world his salvation of grace. Well, I do so because the claim in the New Testament is that God has done this, but not in the ways that anyone would expect. Not in the ways that we are used to. That he has defeated, or as Paul puts it in the book of Colossians, disarmed the rulers and the principalities in ways that don't look like it to us. Like, this is why when John the Baptist and Jesus grow up, okay, and they begin their ministry, and they start preaching, they both begin with the exact same proclamation. It's the same line. Okay, it's, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Because what that means is that God's kingdom is here. When they say that, when they say it's at hand, it does not mean that it's coming. They're actually saying it's confronting you. It's right in front of you. It's smashing into you. 
But to see it, you have to turn around and look a different way. You have to repent. Because repent does not actually mean feel bad about your sin. That's not what that word means. That word literally means to change your mind. Think differently. It's to do a U-turn of the mind and go a different direction. It's to look at things a different way. That's what they're actually saying is, guys, it's here. The kingdom has come. But you can't see it unless you look a different way. Unless you learn to see with eyes of faith. Unless we learn to look at Jesus hanging on a cross and say, that is the king. Unless we learn to look at someone being crowned with a crown of thorns and to say, that's a real crown. Okay, that's what the New Testament writers are actually saying. When they crowned him with a crown of thorns, they thought they were mocking him. They thought it was funny, but they were literally crowning him with the crown to reign over all things. Can we see that? Or do we see defeat? Do we see a loss? Do we see death? Or do we see the one being raised up to rule over all things? Can we see with different eyes? Can we actually behold him? The lamb who became the lion by being slaughtered, to think like God thinks. Because guys, when Jesus came, when Christmas took place, when 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem, the claim is that that baby no one was paying attention to was the conquering king and God of the universe taking on flesh so that he could be killed by us. And that would be victory. That would be our salvation. That's what Zachariah is claiming here, that Jesus came to bring salvation from enemies, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, and to enable his people to be who they were always meant to be, but not in the typical ways. Not through a revolution in which he would overthrow the empires the way we think about it. Not through military might. Not through killing his enemies. But through killing death itself. Not through punishing those who oppose him. Coming after them for their sin. But through actually paying the debt of those who oppose him. Taking the punishment on himself that we deserved so that he could forgive us of our sins. Not through wielding the power of death but through wielding the power of life. By letting death crush him, by letting his enemies nail him to a cross and cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And then rising again so that he could take away the power of death and sin and tell his followers that no matter what they do to you, this will happen to you too. And as soon as he did that, Every single empire, every single kingdom that relies upon death, that relies upon military might, wielding the weapon of death, as soon as Jesus defeated that, he disarmed all of them and said, you're done. It is just me. He took it all on himself. You see, this is why when Zechariah continues on here in verse 76 and starts talking about his son John and how he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, this is why he talks the way he does. Okay, look at verse 76. He says, and you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. So that's his role, right? 
John has to go before the Lord. He's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He before him to prepare people for his arrival so that they might have knowledge of salvation. And salvation, you remember, he's justified as being rescued from enemies, being saved from those who hate him, which to everyone in that day, they would have heard as overthrowing Rome, a revolution over this empire. But look what Zechariah says next. How does he do this? How does he give the people a knowledge of salvation? It's through forgiveness of their sins. That's what John was meant to do. He was to go before Jesus Christ, to prepare the way for Jesus' salvation to come, to give people the knowledge of salvation that Jesus was going to bring through focusing on their need to have their sins forgiven. Not through focusing on the need for Rome to be overthrown, not through focusing on the need for them to be released from their oppressors, even though that needed to happen. They did need to be set free. But the people didn't understand how. They didn't get that God would do that through going to the root of the problem and defeating sin and death. And so John prepared the way for Jesus to come and save the people through focusing on the forgiveness of sins. And I think if we think about this, this makes complete sense. Because when you think back through the story of the Old Testament of Israel, God's people who were set apart for the sake of the world, knowing who God was, knowing his salvation, knowing his goodness, they constantly, time and again, no matter what situation you put them in, failed to truly do that. It didn't matter if they were free or not free. So a lot of their history is them being oppressed by foreign rulers, but not all of it. And when you look at the height of their history, as we would kind of conceive of it, when King Solomon, David's son, ruled over the kingdom, the largest king that they had, they had freedom from foreign rulers. What they did not have still was freedom from their sin. What they did not have was freedom from the temptation to just look like the world around them, look like the other nations around them, to accumulate power and prestige for themselves and thus show the world not God's glory, but their own. And so in their highs and their lows, at the height of their history, they were not who God had called on them to be because sin and death still ruled the day, still ruled their hearts, still ruled their ways. Yes, they had a semblance of freedom, and so they were able to accumulate riches and military might, but they did not have freedom from sin and death. And so they were not truly God's missionary people who were displaying a different way to the world. And yet in many ways, what the people of Jesus' day, what they were looking for when they longed for salvation, was not for their hearts to be healed, for their ways to be put right, for sin and death to be defeated, so they could display to the world the grace of God. They were longing for God's kingdom to come. They weren't longing for God's kingdom to come. They were longing for their own kingdom. They wanted Rome to be overthrown so that they could take its place and live how they want to live. That's not God's kingdom. That's not God's salvation. That's not the story of the world. It's not the gift that was given to us at Christmas. The gift of Christmas is the gift of God coming to us, entering into our world, taking on our sin, enduring death in our hands, in the hands of the powers of the world, so that he could defeat death, could overthrow the powers of the world, could forgive us of our sins, and so usher in the kingdom of God. It's the story of what's said here in verse 79, of light shining on us, living in darkness and in the shadow of death, 
and guiding our feet into the path of peace. You see, our world is dark. We live in the shadow of death, under the clouds of sin, where peace seems so distant, and even those we often believe should be peaceful are not. But in Isaiah 9, in the Old Testament, in that passage that we heard read earlier in our service, God promised that one day the people who walked in darkness would see a great light. One day light would dawn on those in the land of deep darkness. And on that day, the yoke that burdened the people, the rod of oppression would be smashed and every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned for fire because what would we need them for anyway? And on that day, this would happen because to us, a child would be born. A son would be given and the government of the world would rest on his shoulders and we would look to him and we would call him Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of his greatness and of his government and of peace, there would be no end. All would be as it was meant to be. And he would reign on David's throne with justice and with righteousness forevermore. Yes, in Isaiah 9, God promised that one day things would be put right. One day God would overturn the ways of the world. But in Luke 1, in Zechariah's song, God is declaring, that's what I have done. I gave you that child. John prepared the way for him. But Jesus fulfilled it. And one day he will return. And when he does, all that he has already accomplished, his victory, his salvation, his justice, his love, his life, his kingdom, it will be fully revealed. And that means that because of what God has done, we know the end of the story. And it is good. It means that God has given us a glimpse of the resolution and depression, injustice, wars, sickness, sin, and death. The things that haunt us they do not win. The incarnate Son of God, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, our King, He has conquered. He is the victor. He has won. He has triumphed. And He has done it for us. And that should change everything. It should change how we care for people around us. Because it means that God has given us the answer already to our pain and suffering that we see and experience. Not because he gave us explanations as to why things happen. He hasn't. We will cry out, why God? Until the day that Jesus returns. God has not given us an explanation for why these things have happened, and he certainly has not yet relieved us from experiencing their horrors. So we should not be those who try to comfort people by saying, you'll understand this one day, or everything happens for a reason. Those aren't the answers that the Bible gives. And nor should we be downplaying people's pain and acting as if because of what Jesus has done, they shouldn't be this sad or this mad. 
Actually, we should know that of course they're the sad and the mad. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Instead, we should seek to comfort those with the actual answer God has given us, which is Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. We should mourn with them, patiently listen to them, and when we can, remind them that there is a God who suffered for them on the cross, who defeated death, and one day, he will wipe these tears away. One day, it will be gone. This should change how we engage in politics. Not because we don't engage, but because we should recognize there is no candidate and no party that is the hope of the nation or the hope of the world or is the opposite, is going to end the world or end the nation. No movement can save us and no movement can destroy us. Christ is our hope and he has won. We should constantly be looking to him. This should change how we look at the highs of life. There is no good gift on earth that truly satisfies. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So we should not live our lives for experiencing those highs. Not that we try to avoid them, but they shouldn't be what our lives are all about. We should not live for success, for money, for sex, for great experiences, or for marriage. We should live our lives for Jesus Christ. He is the gift God has given. He is the one we need. And this should change the way we experience the lows. Not because we don't feel them or experience them. We do. We feel their ache. And as Christians, we should be those who don't have to turn away because we know the answer. We feel their cold hands grip us. And so we mourn. But as Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn now, for they will be comforted. Yes, blessed are those who long for something better because it's coming. And we know that it is because we know the end. We know the end of the story. And praise God, it is good. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we can say that we are saved, that we are adopted into your family, that we are forgiven, that we can cling to hope that's not wishful thinking, that's not being optimistic, that's rooted in what you have done. Lord, may we know what you have done so that we can know what you will do. I want to pray especially, Father, for those this morning who are struggling to believe this, Strengthen to hold to this. Or may you please in your mercy and your grace open their eyes and their hearts to take hold of this. May we know how to mourn with them, how to walk with them so we point them to Jesus Christ. I pray for those who came this morning going through incredible pain, feeling as if they had to bury that pain because they were coming to church and had to look like everything is fine. May they be okay, Lord, please, with actually admitting to us things are not okay because they're not. May they see that the only answer is Jesus Christ and he has been given. May we praise you, Father, for what you have done. 
that we praise the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because you have conquered, you have won, and we know what's coming. Help us to cling to that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.